0: Hello and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia with Dr James White. Episode 13 The Apostle of Vegetarianism The Tale of Jenny Schultz At the end of the 19th century, one of Europe's most celebrated chefs was the German Jenny Schultz. Born in 1855, she was acclaimed not only for her business acumen, creative menus and culinary capabilities – although these talents she had in abundance – no, her central claim to fame was as Central Europe's most prominent vegetarian restaurateur. Initially trained as a teacher, she was initiated into the flourishing late Victorian vegetarian movement in 1889 and immediately became one of its most die-hard proponents. In 1896 we find her setting up Hungary's first ever meat-free canteen. A few years later she was being employed in Berlin and Locarno, offering fresh, innovative and inspired takes on famous continental dishes, replacing almost omnipresent meat ingredients with a variety of tasty and healthy alternatives. We might imagine her either finishing or preparing for an arduous shift At one of her establishments in 1901, she was always involved up to her very elbows in the daily work and management of her eateries. And then a letter arrived, festooned with strange stamps from its long journey across multiple borders. Curiously opening the missive, her eyes no doubt widened in some surprise. Come to Russia, help us manage a vegetarian restaurant in Moscow. Perhaps taking some seconds to read over the letter a few times, her gaze must have been drawn to the neat, crisp signature adorning the bottom. Leo Tolstoy. the author of War and Peace and Anna Karenina, eccentric religious prophet, excommunicated social dissident, and it was he who wanted Jenny to come to Moscow. Tolstoy was, of course, neither Russia's first nor its most ardent vegetarian. Nor were he and his fellow travellers building something from nothing. For one thing, the enormous number of fasts demanded by the Russian Orthodox Church frequently required its believers to abstain from meat at numerous points in the year. For another, Russia was on the receiving end of the most recent trends and fashions to be found elsewhere in Europe where vegetarianism had begun to make itself felt by the middle of the century. But Tolstoy was, by far, Russian vegetarianism's most prominent proponent. A nobleman by birth, he had spent much of his youth in the dissolution typical of men, given everything by birth and little by merit. His marked success in the world of letters, though, along with his own spiritual wanderlust, set him on a new path. The hymn The 1870s were a painful period of self-investigation, as he probed both his own past sins and those of the society surrounding him. By the end of a decade, the final product of his long search was revealed, a new idiosyncratic form of Christianity that rejected all mystical and metaphysical aspects of religion to place the physical and moral well-being of one's fellow man front and centre his faith also firmly rejected all forms of violent coercion, which had, as its logical colliery, a rejection of all states and state institutions. This was an anarchist, materialist and socially driven form of Christianity, undergirded by a rather poor translation of the Bible that Tolstoy had produced after hurriedly learning ancient Greek. The vegetarianism that was to be one of the most characteristic tenets of Tolstoy's sect was an outcome of both the spiritual and moral aspects of his teachings. On the one hand, Tolstoy renounced the pleasures of the flesh, a necessary sacrifice in the name of God. On the other, he deplored the violence associated with animal slaughter, especially after seeing the visceral brutalities of a provincial Russian abattoir as he reports with tangible horror from the town of Tula. When the blood ceased to flow, the butcher raised the animal's head and began to skin it. The ox continued to writhe. The head, stripped of its skin, showed red with white veins and kept the position given it by the butcher. On both sides hung the skin. Still, the animal did not cease to writhe. Then another butcher caught hold of one of the legs, broke it and cut it off. In the remaining legs and the stomach, the convulsions continued. The other legs were cut off and thrown aside, together with those of other oxen belonging to the same owner. Then the carcass was dragged to the hoist and hung up and the convulsions were over. Thanks to Tolstoy and others, Vegetarianism began to gain a foothold in Russia throughout the 1890s. As elsewhere on the continent, Russians were experiencing an unprecedented amount of choice when it came to defining their own individual identities, facilitated by the fast-growing cities, increasing literacy rates, and new concepts of leisure and free time. Magazines dedicated to hobbies, pastimes, and social causes proliferated, as did associations embodying them. Dietary choices were no exception, especially since they were part of a particularly German fashion for reforming all aspects of one's personal lifestyle clothing, interior decor, exercise from the bottom up. The Russian Empire's expanding urban landscapes, once dominated by the traditional tavern, the traktir, and upper class restaurants, now became home to an expanding range of establishments, offering an enormous variety of food to hungry patrons from multitudinous income brackets. Almost as much as the rich and the merely well-to-do, the poor were being catered for, not least because philanthropically-minded Russians understood that diet and social spaces were also mechanisms for controlling the empire's potentially unruly underclasses. For the better off, Doctors in popular spa towns in the Russian Empire's Baltic provinces were already prescribing meat-free diets as a necessary complement to full body pampering. Consequently, it is hardly surprising to find the first vegetarian restaurant opening its doors in Moscow in 1894. This was followed by the establishment of the St. Petersburg Vegetarian Society in 1901. Provincial copycats soon sprang up, with Kiev gaining such an association in 1908 and Moscow in 1909. A vegetarian journal was run in the revolutionary years of 1905-1906 but collapsed quickly. A more successful version ran between 1908 and the end of the imperial regime in 1917. In 1913, and National Congress of Vegetarians summoned participants from across the vast polity, while the journal ran by Tolstoy's followers, Pasrudnik, the intermediary, both sold vegetarian souvenirs and printed a vegetarian marching song. And as for eateries, these too mushroomed. By 1914, there were some 73 such canteens spread across 37 imperial cities. In at least a few of these, Jenny Schultz played a guiding role, for after her successful first experience in Moscow, she was headhunted to run other projects. For instance, we find her in the multicultural Black Sea port of Odessa in 1913, where the local vegetarian society sought to open a brand new canteen. Here, as elsewhere, the aim of the association was as much philanthropic as it was dietary. Nutritious, hearty, but entirely meat free meals would be provided at a low cost, in clean, salubrious surroundings, and without the temptations of alcohol and rowdy music. On the opening night, the 17th of May 1913, Madame Schultz was charged with writing the menus and commanding the kitchen, which she did with typical aplomb and no small amount of imperiousness. Indeed, her demands for nearly dictatorial kitchen powers soon caused her to clash with the restaurant's proprietors. Nonetheless, the opening night was judged a great success. Offering vegetable pies, asparagus soup and two different sorts of ice cream, among other delicacies, the new canteen was the subject of ardently positive reviews in most local newspapers. Indeed, perhaps it was too successful, On the very next day, it had to close its doors within two hours of opening, the demand was so great that the kitchen ran out of food. More staff had to be quickly hired, but even then queues were commonplace in the summer high season. This was matched by very low levels of patronage during the winter months, which actually meant the canteen ran at a loss. But this typical problem of Russia's vegetarian establishments run more like charities than businesses, hardly dents the very real appeal of Odessa's new eatery. Within its first eight months, more than 125,000 people had visited. Similar levels were seen in Kiev, where some 290,000 people feasted at its two meatless canteens in 1913. In the same year, Moscow's free association canteens served more than half a million ravenous customers. Such figures should give us reason to pause. Do we mean to say that hundreds of thousands of Muscovites in 1913 were actually avid vegetarians? If not, why did they visit the slaughter-free diner? Fascinatingly, the Vegetarian Society in Kiev conducted a poll, if a rather primitive and ill-defined one, among those who frequented the city's two such canteens in 1912. The overwhelming majority of respondents, some 994 of 1,392 people, said they did not identify as vegetarians. Of the 398 who did consider themselves partakers in a meat-free diet, most were men, 286 as opposed to 112 women. They were single and were, crucially, students. This points to a key reason for the success of this new kind of eating experience. The bistros have the dual advantage of being both cheap and clean, both inexpensive and nutritious, perfect qualities for the large student population in the cultural hub of Kiev. Furthermore, thanks to the efforts of Jenny Schultz and her imitators, the dishes were specifically designed to be both curiously novel and imbued with heady flavours. Then, as today, poor and hungry students were always on the lookout for a good, tasty meal deal, if possible in a trendy urban locale. And the menus created by Jenny Schultz for the Odessa Canteen certainly sought to service demands for an in-vogue eating experience. We find there not only vegetarian versions of typical russian dishes for instance pirozhki and blini pies and pancakes but also recreations and reinterpretations of european haute cuisine schultz who came from a polish region of germany also added a personal touch by offering a large number of vegetarianized polish dishes such as brussels sprouts cooked in the polish style and the roulé dish srazi, here lacking its characteristic beef component. Paradoxically, the very success of these menus and restaurants exacerbated growing ideological rifts in the movement. The empire's vegetarian associations defined their tasks relatively loosely, because they had to. There were many reasons one could come to the conclusion that forgoing animal flesh was a good way to live. However, the most vocal and active participants congregated around two particular poles within the movement. On the one hand, there were religious vegetarians, those who abjured the slaughterhouse and the butcher's shop for the sake of self-abnegating abstinence in the face of a demanding deity. On the other, there were the medical vegetarians, People who put aside blood, gristle and tendons in the belief that doing so would help them live longer, healthier and happier lives, purified of potentially dangerous nutrients that led to a whole host of disorders, not least gout. These medically minded people were overjoyed at the success of the restaurants, the perfect missionary outposts for their lifestyles and literature. But for ascetically orientated vegetarians, the eateries were hubs of gluttony, offering troughs of food that denuded vegetarianism of its sacrificial, self-renouncing character. To the medicalists, their opponents were dreary, life-denying and unscientific, while they in turn were castigated by the religious as godless gourmands. Given his rather equivocal reasons for vegetarianism, Tolstoy and his image were torn apart by the two sides, with both claiming that this ultimate sponsor, whose portrait graced the walls of most vegetarian libraries, diners and premises, belonged to them and not the other. At stake was the very heart of the movement. For the medicalists, vegetarianism was the culmination of an age of reason and science, the last in a long line of steps that would whisk mankind away from its brutal, savage, cave-dwelling past. For the religionists, the diet was an incomparable spiritual step, a saintly renunciation of the world and its moribund delights. Both were unacceptable to the other, as we shall now see. Take Olga Prahaska, the religiously-minded editor of the Kiev Vegetarian Herald. The vegetarian disavows all these worldly pleasures, meat, wine, cigarettes, every luxury, the chasing after fashion and high positions in society, etc, etc. Vegetarianism finds all of this repulsive. For her part, Natalia Nordman-Syvalova, the wife of the painter Ilya Repin, another distinguished vegetarian, encapsulates the polar opposite view. Can this have anything in common with asceticism? An ascetic refuses all human pleasures and withdraws to the wilderness, to solitude. He feeds almost exclusively on roots and does not want to have anything to do with people, whom he despises. We vegetarians, on the other hand, are in the full sense of the word cheerful even voluptuous since we sacrifice many things for this passion we are the true followers of the callimated epicurus who did indeed indulge in pleasures but pleasures of a higher order than food and drink we feed not on roots but on the sweetest and most wonderful of nature's gifts fruits and berries milk and honey Just like the genuine inhabitants of a promised land, every dinner is for us a holiday celebration. Along with this split in the movement, there were of course people who disliked, opposed or mocked vegetarianism in its totality. A magnificent example of the travails of a lowly born vegetarian is the story of the peasant Ivan Shiptchenko. In 1909, he got hold of a copy of an Odessa newspaper, wherein he read a speech made by Dr. Alexander Yasinovsky, a Jewish doctor who'd renounced a promising career in surgery because he could not stand the wretched odour of cauterised flesh. Subsequently, he had become famous as one of Russia's most forthright pronouncers of vegetarianism's medical benefits. The peasant Shipchenko, decided first to renounce meat, and then to resettle in a different part of the empire, in his case, the Caucasus. However, his new work friends mocked his dietary regimen, so he wrote to Yasinovsky for moral support. Here is the reply. Citizen Ivan, the next time I go to the Caucasus, I will certainly visit you. You should in no way be involved in the killing of animals, either directly or indirectly. No one has the right to impose such a job on you, as this is an anomaly and a disgrace. We have already achieved a prominent evolution. Now, by forcing you to kill animals, you are required to step back, return to a barbaric state. If the members of the colony want to flog someone let them do the flogging themselves. If they want to eat slaughtered foods, let them do the killing themselves. If they want to eat a hare, let them go hunting for it. What do you, vegetarians, have to do with it? On the contrary, you must counteract such abominations in every way and convince your comrades to fall in behind you. Do not simply repeat the old mistakes. Do not rely on religion, ethics, aesthetics, etc. You won't catch anyone. Strike with facts from the fields of anatomy, physiology, chemistry and pathology. Success is then insured. Chipchenka's buddies were not the only opponents of vegetarianism in the empire. For some, the renunciation of meat was simply ridiculous an outlandish foreign fad to be laughed at and derided. Others associated meat-eating with the allegedly masculine virtues of virility and strength, in which case vegetarianism was feminization by stealth. They often attempted to bolster such claims by pointing out that vegetarianism had caught on particularly well among the empire's Jewish population. A disturbing anti-Semitic dog-whistle in a country vitiated by repeated pogroms. In the Russian Orthodox Church, the clergy were suspicious of Leo Tolstoy's leading role in the movement, since his new Christian sect specifically denounced Russian Orthodoxy as a dead faith, a credo for which he had been excommunicated by the Holy Synod in 1901. That being said, however, others were more sympathetic, with a few priests and teachers becoming practising vegetarians themselves. For instance, we find Jakob Varask, an Orthodox parish schoolteacher in what is today Estonia, renouncing meat-eating in 1891 after reading a short-lived journal about animal welfare. His wife, however, was slow to establish a new regime in the household, as we find in his diary entry, the 21st of March 1892. In the evening I punished Helena because she bought pork for our guests yesterday. Helena gave a promise that she would no longer eat meat and I resolved not to buy meat for our guests. Thus meat was conclusively banished from our home and along with meat, anger, the fruit of meat eating. All predators are evil, while non-predators are merry and good. So by the beginning of the First World War, vegetarianism had made notable strides in the Russian Empire. Led by dynamic and popular thinkers like Jenny Schultz, Dr Yasinovsky, and Leo Tolstoy, among others, associations, libraries, public talks and diners had been established in many of the empire's biggest urban centres drawing in relatively large numbers of people. These activities assuredly did not convert all participants to full-on vegetarianism. Indeed, the diet and its associated lifestyle remained, for the most part, an unusual choice of a small minority. But the movement absolutely did establish vegetarianism as a potential life option for the empire's ever more assertive educated and individualistic population, eager to try out new novelties and fashion lives and identities that were uniquely theirs. Of course, the years of horrendous slaughter between 1914 and 1921 threw a spanner in the works. By the time the Soviet Union came into being, neither the numerous vegetarian associations nor their newspapers had survived. What did come out of the conflict, however, were the restaurants. Indeed, during the war years, they became even more popular. As prices rose, supplies dwindled, and refugees flooded into the central provinces, the cheap, healthy, and well-sourced food on offer in vegetarian joints was much prized. Consequently, they carried on operating into the 1920s. Maurice Hindus, who travelled in the Soviet Union in these years, had this to say about the ongoing vitality of vegetarian restaurants. The soups, the salads, the cereals, the boiled cauliflower soaked in melted butter, the meat substitutes, the puddings, the incomparable blini with luscious sour cream and fresh butter, the compotes, the other desserts, the rich milk, the well-prepared cocoa, All these would have pleased the most exacting palate. The prices were nominal and the courtesy of the attendants beyond reproach. This early Soviet flourishing is not necessarily surprising. Some Bolsheviks found much to like in the medicalist approach to vegetarianism, with its focus on the scientific advancement of mankind. And the 1920s were an era of relative liberality. experimentation, at least until Stalin wrapped his tendrils around the mechanisms of power. Then there was to be no toleration of vegetarianism, a Western bourgeois invention designed to sap the will and might of the workers. As the great Soviet encyclopedia of 1951 declares to its readers, The ideologues of the exploitative classes, in their attempt to hide from the toiling classes the true causes of economic inequality, strongly support all sorts of anti-scientific doctrines which, by means of the moral principles of personal self-perfection, mask the class essence of oppression. This explains the widespread popularisation of vegetarianism in the capitalist countries. All the arguments advanced by vegetarians to support eating exclusively herbivorous food are anti-scientific. Thus, modern post-Soviet Russians have been left to rediscover vegetarianism, both in its foreign varieties and the homegrown version that emerged at the beginning of the 20th century. Many now turn to recipe books that copied heavily from Jenny Schultz. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.